With everything from connectivity to autonomous technologies, today's cars are more cutting edge than ever before. And it's no surprise that much of that innovation comes from automotive suppliers like Continental. Joining us to discuss the direction of today's industry is North American CEO, Samir Salman. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. I want to thank you all for joining us on AutoLine this week. Today's topic's all going to be about the automotive supply chain, maybe even with one particular company in mind. And I'm saying that because my special guest today is Samir Salman the CEO for the NAFTA region of the giant supplier Continental. He's also, I have to add, to the immediate past chairman of the Original Equipment Suppliers Association. Salman, great to have you on AutoLine. Thank you for having me. Also joining us today are Gary Vasilash from Automotive Design and Production Magazine and Drew Winter from Ward's Auto. And great to have the both of you here, too. Thanks, John. Well, Samir, I think we got to start with uh, the recent presidential election in the United States. Uh, President-elect Trump says, I mean, you're the CEO of the NAFTA region for Continental. He says he's going to rip up the NAFTA agreement and renegotiate it. What would your advice be to a President Trump as to what he should be on the lookout for? Well, first of all, I think, you know, a part of the election, there's always no business without show business, though. Part of the, t- the part <laughs> is it to, to look at the election, then have first the election being done, which was which happened now on the 8th of November. And then going forward, we'll see what the potential changes are. I can only say from our perspective, we have manufacturing, R&D, um, in, in, in sales, obviously, in, in everywhere in NAFTA, if it's Canada, if it's the U.S., or if it's... Uh, if it's Mexico, both are dear and near to us. I know some of this is speculation. We don't know what he's going to do, but you know he's talking about putting tariffs on vehicles imported from Mexico. Uh, as you look at the NAFTA region, not just as the CEO for Continental in that regard, but also from the whole supplier community, what would that do to your cost base if all of a sudden you really didn't have access to Mexico like you do right now? Yeah, you know, obviously there's certain concerns. It's not about only Mexico. There's other trade agreements. And I think what will happen, the things will be in, in balance at the end. Everybody's interested in creating creating job and keeping the jobs, which we uh, all have. And especially the automotive industry, as you guys know, is a very global global industry, so we'll have to keep things balanced and we'll wait and see what are the changes and we'll do the adaptions which are needed. Isn't it true also that one of the big attractions of Mexico, it's not just the low labor rates, it's the fact that it has so many more trade, international trade agreements, right? It's easier for suppliers and, and manufacturers to do business in Mexico and export from Mexico than it is the U.S., correct? Well, that, that, that's correct, and I think that's why I said it's it's more complex than only an after-trade agreement. There's When you're global, there's more than one trade agreement you'll have to, to look at. It's highly complex, and we'll look at it once things develop. Isn't the nature of the auto industry such that it is totally integrated, totally global? I mean, Continental has facilities around the world, people around the world, and so presumably there are there are developments that are going on here that are showing up in vehicles that are in Europe and, and vice versa and Asia and so on. Can you talk yeah, about that yeah, a little ab- bit? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, that's what I just mentioned. It's so global and it's so interconnected that it is important if one change happens. You know, it's like an, an equation which is in balance. If one thing happens on the one side of the equation, something else has to happen on the other side of the equation. And depending what that change of the one side of the equation is, you know, we'll have to adapt 
the other side of the equation. But it's, in, in my opinion, it's too early to tell what that will be. We'll f first up, before we go into speculations, what are exactly the things which are going to be uh, to be changed? You know, it could be changes uh, here and there, or what you mentioned, John, would be ripping totally apart certain uh, trade agreements. Uh, it depends what it is. We'll see what the balance is and how, how the right reaction is. I'm curious about another element, too, where our president-elect also is talking about you know, cutting back a lot of regulations on business and cutting back, I think, on um, uh, certainly uh, vehicle emissions and fuel economy standards and whatnot. It seems like that's kind of a two-edged sword for you guys, perhaps that, uh, you know, in one case, dereg less regulations may make you more profitable. On the other hand, you're, a big part of your business is devoted to making more fuel-efficient vehicles, right? Yeah, I think the target is, at the end of the day, is to create jobs, and I think the certain the regulations which will create jobs and move t uh, technologies forward uh, and you know, do the things which we we all see, if it's automated driving, if it's uh, emissions, all the things which need safety uh, on the roads, that will be driven forward, in my opinion, independent uh, of uh, who would have been the president. But nonetheless, you and the rest of the supplier community and the automakers have really been investing heavily for an expected cafe of 54, uh, yeah, is it 54.5 uh, miles per gallon by 2025. Yes. Yes. A, a lot of that investment has been laid in place. Are you afraid now that maybe some of that investment may become obsolete? Yeah, that, that could happen, but that's something we deal with across the world. You know, this is regulations change if you take uh, within, within China or within Europe, within other areas of the world. Regulations uh, change over time. That's a part of the business. So we adapt to regulations potentially changes as they come. It's nothing new. It's, I want to say it's nothing special that a regulation might change only within the U.S. It changes elsewhere as well. Mm -hmm. do, do you see technologies like 48 volt systems? Continental announced that it's gone into volume production with for the 48 volt system that'll go into a, a Renault. I mean, do, do you see technologies like that having a good future in the U.S. should cafe regulations be stricken? Yeah, I, um, I think, you know, even if they're, even if they're stricken and go down, if, if it depends, you know where we come from. We want to go to 54.5 by 2025, to, to uh, 54.5 miles per gallon, even if it is less even it would be you know going down to whatever number you still need this technology to get there you know so the technologies are here to stay and so 48 volt absolutely i think is a is a part of uh, what will help us in getting in, uh, some kind of electrification into the vehicles we believe by 2025 or so that roughly 20% of the vehicles being built will have some kind of electrification and uh, 48 volt probably being half of that. Mm -hmm. Samir, what's your thought on pure electrics? Some people think uh, Bloomberg Energy Finance did a study and they're saying 2022 could be the tipping point yeah. where sales of electric cars really start to take off. I, I uh, buy the numbers that you're talking of electrification, 20%, that includes hybrids, of course. But for pure battery electrics, what's your sense of what yeah. the market will do? Pure ba battery electrics. So first of all, when you ask five people, you get 25 answers. <laughs> you know, it's, a very, it's probably one of the most difficult questions to answer. But obviously, we have an opinion. As I said, roughly 20% of the vehicles by 2025 or so will be ha have will have some kind of electrification. Obviously, many of them hybrid 48 volts vehicles. The pure electrical, somewhere 5% or less. Okay, but we also look at 
different scenarios depending on what happens with technology because when I say 5% or less it's I'm assuming certain technologies certain regulations and these techno these regulations or technologies might change so if you take technology the one of the issues with which the battery cells would have or would could be improved is is energy density some other technical challenges if, if that breaks through some new technology in five or ten years from now you know things could could change dramatically and then if you look at certain trends in our society by 20 70 percent by 2050 70 percent of the population of the world will be living in an urban in urban environment we're looking at incredible growth of cities uh, somewhere in in 2025 we're probably looking at worldwide 40 450 big cities so city managers they will will be probably a part of who will drive what is needed in pure electrification just because of pure um, you know not only electrification but also automated driving just to make sure that the cities have clean air you know i'm fascinated that you say maybe there could be some breakthrough out there Something in your R&D labs percolating that you've got your eye on? No, not really, but we always obviously scout all potential technologies out there. And, and we think as in, in any technology which we have uh, you know, brought to light in the automotive industry, sooner or later something else is out there which improves whatever you have. So if this, there is this big push towards electrification, what happens to light-duty diesels? I mean, they're not a big part of the U.S. market, but globally, it's a, they're, they're a huge part of, uh, of the vehicle market. Do they, uh, are they going away, or, or what do you think of the light-duty yeah, diesels' future? Yeah, I don't think that diesels will go away totally, but definitely you will see um, in, in smaller engines, I, th I think they will, will go away. So in total, you'll see a, a lower rate of diesel in the different markets, maybe less here because it's already uh, on a very low level, but even in Europe you would see that probably going down. Is, is that as a result of electrification or a result of the additional expense of emissions to treat it, exhaust? It, that's why I said it depends on which car you're looking at. If it's a, a smaller engine, so then it would be the cost, what emission uh, regulations would put as costs into the, into the vehicle. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting you say 5% electric vehicles, and, and that's actually an enormous number compared to where we are right now. I mean, it, yeah. you know, it might seem very small to people, only 5%, only yeah, but... It's now 0.6%. Right, so we're to the right of the decimal point yeah. now, and we're going to go to whole numbers. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, but even, you know, 5%, you say it sounds high, and I, I, and I agree from where we are, but even there are scenarios out there where it could be potentially 15%, and so it really depends how also cities will play out. What will be the demands of, of cities? Look at you know, cities like Göteborg in Sweden or in, in, uh, in, uh, in Norway, uh, where they're even trying in, within four or five years to have out-of-free zones inside of the city or London and other cities. Just ban going, cars altogether. Just ban cars altogether. That's not a trend, but the main, you know, one of the main trends really is to, to make sure that whatever comes into the inner cities, that they have a certain level of cleanliness. Samir, in Europe, especially amongst the German automakers, uh, especially the high-end ones, Mercedes, BMW, and Audi, there's a major push into electrification, far more so than any other automakers. You, you work for a German company. What do the Germans see with electrics that they're putting so much effort into it right now? 
Yeah, I think over the over the long run, what they see is, as as I said, you know, more and more urbanization happening, more and more people living in the in the cities, which uh, p- plus the the tendency of car sharing. So, every car sharing vehicle is seen as in some kind of a hybrid or electrical vehicle. So that's a part of it. What is pushing it as well? And what's your thought on on? Uh this move to ride sharing and car sharing. There, there's, there's a raging debate in the industry that, you know, maybe it's going to lead to fewer car sales because if people are sharing cars, we don't need as many. On the other hand, there's the argument that says, well, wait a minute, if all of a sudden we make mobility far cheaper and available to everyone, the old, the young, the disabled, we're going to need more cars. How, how do you think this is going to work out? Yeah, so, so car sharing uh, definitely, I think, uh, will come. And again, everything is interconnected if you see when would you need a car uh, to be shared? That's typically in a city, city environment with you know with with lower distances or, or smaller distances, and the fact that we're looking at uh, society which is developing towards the city or these cities, that's why I think car sharing will be will be coming. In terms of will that lead to less vehicles? First of all, I think there's a lot of room. Uh, to uh, share cars because if you look at today roughly worldwide roughly six million people share cars and they share roughly hundred thousand cars and that number is going to go up in the next four or five years six times so roughly 36 million people will be sharing cars and the number of cars they will be sharing is 250,000 so if you think of if you, if you think of 2020 as an example give or take probably hundred vehicles will be will be produced uh, there's a lot of room for the for the sharing because I think what we forget in this equation is the miles driven. If you take the U.S. as an example, more than three trillion miles um, are driven, and so car sharing. What will car sharing do? In my opinion, car sharing will increase the miles driven because certain people who could not drive anymore as much all of a sudden have the potential to drive to drive much more or not drive but be driven. Uh, much more miles, which they typically wouldn't wouldn't do, and, and you know I can say, you know, in my private life, my my parents would, uh, who are in the older generation, they now kind of have their own geofence, which is around where they have to shop, and if if they need to pick me up from the airport, it's kind of that's ah, outside of my geofence. <laughs> I used to go there, but I don't go there anymore. But if you think about car sharing, you know, the feeling to stand there at the airport, say, okay, I'll. I'll uh, I'll pick you up. All of a sudden, that that ride, which wasn't possible anymore, is possible. So there's a lot of a lot of um, uh, opportunity and and growth potential in 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 ride sharing. So I'm not so worried about what you said. Although there's analysis out there saying, okay, there will be probably fewer cars being built. We actually think it's going to be rather flat, but not really fewer cars. Or when I say flat, it's going to be a flatter growth rate than, than it, it, you, it would have been without uh, car sharing. Mm-hmm. So Continental is a huge supplier. You make all sorts of different types of products from tires and, 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 and um, uh, now you're into, you, you've got LIDAR divisions, you've got autonomous driving, um, uh, all these different aspects involved with engines and whatnot. With all these changes in the auto industry, five years from now, what are you, what are your your big hot products or or, or segments going to be? Well, I would say in in general, you can say anything if you watch the the if you look at the trends. The trends: clean air, 
So anything which would support clean air is a hot product. If it's engine downsizing, if it comes to combustion, or if it's electrification, if it comes to what we just discussed to, uh, towards hy hybrid vehicles, that's uh, definitely uh, a product which we would have in the portfolio. Then the second uh, tendency you have is connectivity. Everybody wants to be connected. So that's definitely going to be whatever is in our portfolio today and will be, which supports connectivity, that will be something which we probably would sell heavily. And, and thirdly, within, within the chassis area, whenever it comes to, to safety and it comes to automated driving, if it's the sensors, if it's the, the braking, that will be hot as well. So automated driving definitely will push a lot of what we will have in, in the portfolio. Getting back to this ride sharing, and you were mentioning that more miles will be driven. And does this possibly mean that we'll need more robust cars, higher quality cars, that it may actually increase what you guys as suppliers need to do to provide to make these cars last even longer than they might, even though the period of time they may be in service may be shorter. Checker yeah. cab type cars? <laughs> yeah. Well, or just, I, I don't, just elements within it, brakes yeah, or... Yeah, Gary, I don't, I don't really think so because if you look at the average consumer, we use our asset, which we pay roughly 33000 in average, $33,000 in average. We use it 5% of, uh, of the time or more or less an hour a day. Uh, others, which are already in, in, uh, out there on the road, if it's taxi cabs and others, they use their, their cars much, much uh, longer. So there's already proven that the cars can, can take, that kind of, uh, take that kind of load. So the only thing we will see is that more cars or car, some of the cars will be used more than this mentioned one hour a day. Mm -hmm. Do you change your test cycles and your duty cycles uh, for the components that you're designing, anticipating that cars are going to wear out far more quickly if instead of being parked for 23 hours a day, they're used for that many hours? No, we're not changing that because they're already today foreseen if somebody wanted, if you wanted to drive your car eight hours a day or 10 hours a day, you could do it and you could have no issues. Hmm. So. Continental announced its, its third quarter earnings, and um, the automotive group globally did very well. And um, it, it struck me that electronic sensors and software were three of the elements that contributed greatly to your growth. And does, does this mean that a supplier like Continental becomes a, a producer of things that are not necessarily tangible in ways that we're familiar with? like braking systems or steering systems or chassis pieces? No, I would say you would still have the tangible products. It's just the tangible product, which you know will have more content of electronics in it. Samir, as, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you're the immediate past chairman of the OESA, the Original Equipment Suppliers Association. What's your, your how do I say this? If you want to put your pulse on what the supplier community is thinking right now, what is it? What, what are the top three concerns among suppliers? Yeah, thank you for that question. So first of all, I want to say it was an honor for me to be the, the chairman of OESA, and I've served on the board uh, already four years and will be continuing service, uh, ser my service on the board. So within OESA, because why it's so important to, to, to be engaged within OESA, it's, it supports our industry, and I think it's always uh, important to support the industry you, which you work on. So coming to your uh, question, John, what is, what is it, what is on the supplier's mind? One, one of the things, obviously, is the new technology, and it's not only new technology by itself, but the speed that new technology is changing. Uh, 
So to staying up to to stay up to date and what these technology changes are is very important to the members of uh, OESA. And I would say also, secondly, is understanding legislation, what potential legislation w would be changing, and how does it affect their their businesses. Mm -hmm. How does the auto industry in general get sexier to Wall Street? It seems like we've seen automakers and suppliers have had some uh, very, very good years, and yet they don't seem to be getting a lot of respect from Wall Street in terms of um, higher valuations and whatnot. I mean, yeah, first of all, I think uh, what I don't totally agree that it is seen that way by the financial markets. I think there are many companies which are seen very positively in the automotive industry by the financial markets and others less less uh, uh, interesting. Depends obviously on, on their performance. But we're definitely, first of all, we're a very sustainable industry. We, um, we, we are stable in general. If you take a long trajectory, it's a very stable industry. That's probably one thing which is very interesting. And then the growth rate, which is is possible and now even we can be very diverse in what we offer it's still the automotive industry but it's not anymore the so-called what we call the proven business model or other OEMs call it the core business by just buying uh, building cars it's now going to probably enhance even more into mobility services and I think that will keep it sexy well you guys have a, a facility in Silicon Valley uh, the intelligent transportation systems operation yes um, is, is that something that may be in part uh, an answer to Drew's question by, by having um, advanced technologies that are being applied to the auto industry? Yeah, obviously what, what we want to achieve there, it's, um, and not only there, that we really seen, and we're not alone, and not only new OEMs, because many people say, well, it's only the new OEMs or the Teslas of this world who are interested in, in, in um, mobile services. That's, in my opinion, not true. If you look at what the so-called uh, traditional OEMs, if it's uh, Ford or GM and others are doing, they're heavily investing in, in, in mobile services and mobility services, sorry, into mobility services. And, and uh, obviously, you have to bring these two worlds together. On the one hand, the what we call the business uh, proven business model and the new business model, and how can you bring them together? And that's what we're trying to do within our, what we call, ITS business unit in Silicon Valley. Samir, one of the challenges in doing that as you get into new technologies and new businesses is having the talent, the in-house talent to do that. Yeah. Everywhere I go in the industry, everywhere, at all levels, everyone's complaining they cannot get the talent that they need. My understanding is that uh, Continental bought the electronics company Electrobit, Yes. Just to get its hands on a whole bunch of software engineers. <laughs> well, I would say that's a, a little bit... Uh, simplified. Simplified, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, oversimplified. Obviously, that's one of the reasons to get some certain software engineers. But Electrobit really is... We bought Electrobit because of the deep understanding of, of integrating uh, software. But coming back to your first statement, do, are we in the war of talent for for uh, software or any other talent, in, especially in, within engineering, the answer is absolutely yes. And we roughly employ 12,000 uh, engineers. You know, if you compare that to Google, it's roughly 18,000 or so, and uh, Apple around 16,000. So we have quite a number of, of software engineers, but nevertheless, you have to keep that work environment very, very attractive in order to attract and to keep that kind of talent. And do you think you might make more acquisitions to be able to get the talent that you need? Oh well, we wouldn't do acquisitions just for the sake of of talent. It has to be a little bit more a strategic background. Why we would uh, 
acquire a certain company. Plus, um, we do not only believe that everything can be solved by acquisitions. There's also the, the potential of you know collaborating with with other companies. So, why would a software engineer find it appealing to work for Continental or an automobile comp- company versus? working for some startup? Well, I was hoping that I already answered that question, how <laughs> sexy this industry is. But, but I really, I think if, if you look at uh, what we work on and how we're uh, in the soul, even life-saving industry, you know, let's not forget that this world uh, basically loses 1, 1.2 billion people a year. 1.2 million. Uh, 1.2 million. Million from traffic accidents. 1.2 million. Which is still a huge number. A huge number. You know, if you put that in perspective, I always say, put in perspective a jumbo jet, give or take, has 400 people. So if you divide that number, 1.2 million divided by by 400, you're talking about 3,000 jumbo jets crashing a year. You know, we would stop a lot of industry if that would happen. So uh, what I'm trying to say here, and and at the same time, we know that 95% of these accidents, these unfortunately deathly, uh, accidents happen due to human error. So there's a, the technology will help to avoid certain human errors and, or even take them totally out of the equation. And that's the reason why we think and that's how we attract uh, especially engineers to say, isn't that a great industry to work in? And we find that a lot of people are attracted to it. Don't and, you think, and, too, uh, uh, sorry, that people are attracted to coming up with a new generation of cars rather than maybe just some other electronic device. Absolutely, but uh, what we're building uh, in future or helping the OEMs to build is at the end of the day a new generation uh, of a car. Mm-hmm. Well, I've also heard that you've done work also in, in researching what uh, millennial job goals are and whatnot and, and, and offering them opportunities to uh, get foreign assignments if that might be interesting or, yes. or, or uh, you know, having uh, some pretty sexy job opportunities to, to work in, in different areas and, and, and locales or whatever that you've, you've done a lot of work in that area and making it uh, appealing uh, yeah. for young people. And I need a super quick answer. We're down okay. to the end. Okay. So millenniums, uh, just a quick answer. Millenniums uh, make 30% of the workforce today that will go up to 50%. And so simple things which are important to make and which we have done is jeans days every day, for example. It's also the work environment, how we set up the cubicles, uh, and so on and so on. Um, um, having we space and not only I space of, of cubicles, these kind of things make it attractive to come and work for us. With that, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up. Samir Salman, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your ideas about Continental, where this industry is going, and especially the supplier community. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. Gary and Drew want to thank you, too. And, of course, want to thank all of you for having tuned in.